0: You're supposed to be sitting in your buggy seat enjoying life listening to the radio and all of a sudden you're, you're sitting in the Aspen stand with shelter in hand thinking why the hell am I doing this job again?
1: When the hair on the
2: back of your neck starts to stand up, act on it.
1: And the dude leading the hike out just stopped in his tracks and he made eye contact with me and he said the main fire is always an issue.
3: This is the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center podcast, the Nuttle Fire Series. I'm Alex Victoria, Assistant Center Director of the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center. As part of the 2017 Week of Remembrance, we're taking a look at a single shift on a single fire, the Nuttle Fire, which burned on the Coronado National Forest on the Safford Rainier District in July of 2004. If you've never been to the Coronado National Forest, it's the forest in southeastern Arizona, that's made up of a number of sky islands, timbered mountain ranges which are surrounded by hot and dry low country. For those of you who'd like some visual aids to help you paint a picture of the Nuttle Fire, the Aspen Stand, the Slopover, Drop Point 20, and Hellospot's H4 and H6, check out the Nuttle Fire videos on the Wildland Fire Lessons Learned Center YouTube channel. Today we hear the perspective from two squad leaders from the Flagstaff Interagency Hotshot crew, Dan and Corey. You'll get to meet them in a second dan and corey were both in some of the most critical spots on the nuttle fire the aspen stand the slop over and perhaps most importantly down by h4 Hellespot four let's listen in now as travis dotson lessons learned center analyst talks with dan and corey about their day july 2nd 2004 on the nuttle fire Okay, let's uh, get into it. Why don't you guys tell us uh, who you are, first off?
2: All right. Um Dan Martin, and I was a squad boss at the time of the Fire on the Flagstaff crew.
0: And uh, I'm Corey Robinson. I was the other squad leader or squad boss on uh, the Nuttall Fire on the Flagstaff crew. All right. And, and what do you guys do nowadays? Uh, I am a district FMO in uh, Region 2, Colorado.
2: I'm a forest FMO in Region 8 in Virginia.
1: So we're talking about the metal fire. You guys were both on Flagstaff Hot Shots. We'll jump into kind of what what did that day look like in, um, in terms of just, like, waking up. Did you guys – had been on the fire already, right? That wasn't your
0: first shift. It was a bit. We spent a few days down in the desert chasing around just direct line, and then we tied in a jeep tail to, to some rock bluffs and then they bumped everybody around and we became part of the burn group um so we went up and started burning i believe and uh i know uh you know the night leading up into that day or that shift we were notified i think late that night right when we were all about to bed down that um we they needed us in early um just the crew and that the soup would go down to briefing. And I don't know exactly where briefing was at, but we were just found a pullout up near the fire and slept that night, um, one of the campgrounds up there, I think. We got up early and then, you know, I had a real quick breakfast, MRE-type stuff, and then got to work is how I remember it, Dan.
2: Yep, it was pretty early because I recall um us talking about, rubs and stuff torching it at like 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, we had we did do a burnout the night before after we bedded down. I guess they fought it all night long, and that was the slopovers that we were supposed to take care of that next day.
1: All right. So you guys, it it, it wasn't exactly the typical wake up in fire camp and kind of wait around for briefing and all that stuff. It was one of those deals where the crew is going to go out
0: and get get working. Something like that. There was something with the the crews that were supposed to take that line had broke two to one, like Dan said, fighting or picking up spots. So they bumped us. Like I said, we were a firing group, but they bumped us out of firing, and uh, we came on early and went in and started picking stuff up because it was Geronimo, the Mount Taylor had passed two to one. So they were going to be down a while, so they needed us to go in and see work the spots slash slops that they had gotten the night before on the burn. So then you
1: guys got up early and
0: uh went up there
1: to that shortcut parking area. Yeah, uh, that's right. Okay. So that so the folks that jump out of the, the the trucks and you know, you're gonna go scout out your work assignment, um who who was that like first thing in the morning or I'm guessing that's how it went. I don't know, you guys tell
2: me um, well, I think we took the whole crew, but I know Corey, myself, and Todd were in the front. There Was the whole crew with us, Corey? I can't remember.
0: I think to a certain point, Dan, and um, initially we got the, the brief that there was a few spots that they needed us to to work on, and we, we packed up, we started down from shortcut, made it a short distance, and ran across um, burned hose and a fairly large slop over. Um, so I right. think at that point, the, the crew went back to the trucks uh, or hung out at there, and it was Todd Wood and crew boss trainee. Those guys mm-hmm. headed down the line, and then Dan and I were kind of up at the top of the, the slop over, and I remember it was uh, the Plumas captains were there too, and uh, that's where we kind of noticed that, yeah, at 6.30 in the morning, uh The locust brush was already torching. There was active fire in the aspens. We're looking down a fairly steep, thick hill, and there's just a uh, pretty active fire edge, and it's a lot more than a few little spots that we were supposed to go in and pick up. It was uh, a fairly good-sized slop over. And then I know we spent probably an hour or so kind of scouting that, and uh, I'm not sure where you ended up going, Dan, but I kind of walked the edge down a ways, and it was more than what our crew and Plumas was going to pick up in a short time without aviation or, you know, more crews to help us.
2: Yep. I think I walked down uh, toward the knob into the saddle um, at some point. I don't know exact time frame, but um, I walked over, and cause you could see uh, there was there was actually smoke coming up out of the drainage and then across across the hill, and then we all kind of just RTO'd and went back up to the parking lot.
0: Yeah, and I know at that point, talking with Todd, that Dan and I, or speaking for you, Dan, I guess, but we were not comfortable uh, engaging at that point with the the briefing that we had gotten that night of going in and grabbing a few spots and picking those up. That is not what was out on the ground, so we were not comfortable, and I know talking with, with the Plumis guys they, they were not comfortable either with getting the crew started first thing in the morning. So I think we just kinda hung out there at shortcut parking lot um until the soups arrived. And it was yeah. I don't know, an hour or so maybe later. A bit of time for sure.
2: There was some radio traffic too. I think uh Todd was calling back to let them know that we needed more support uh to, to be able to do the mission. I think that's how we ended up getting Augusta. A uh, they tried to maybe speed up the briefing a little bit to get them over, but I agree with what Corey says there. I definitely wasn't comfortable with it um, as far as it just, uh, you know, with what we had with the people that we had and the mission that they um, had provided us with. So it's kind of one of those deals where it's like you, you had this picture in your mind, which was, hey,
1: we're just going to go in there early, pick up a few spots, and then we'll be – we will be on to the main point of the day. Um and, and that, that early thing was just kinda just to pick up those spots and you, you get down the hill and you're like, whoa, this isn't this is not the picture that was painted for us. And so that's kinda what prompted this, hey let's reevaluate, let's let's see what we actually got and whether or not this is a this is a a viable plan still.
0: Yeah, for sure, and you know, just to put it in perspective for those guys that have fought fires in the Sky Islands down on, you know, on the Coronado, is you break out of the the timber. So up there on the top, you know, it's heavy timber, and I just remember walking down with Dan, and at about the point where the slop over started, is about the point you you just look out, you know, and you're looking down onto the desert floor, and uh, so you're you, you know you're you're looking down forever. And then, you know, with the inversion setting in, there's just smoke down in the drainages. Um, you're kind of above that point, so you're just looking down. It almost looks like, you know, looking down onto that thick smoke, and then they're expecting you to bail down into these steep drainages and pick up a few spots. So it's just like, wow, this is this is not anything that we were told. So,
2: and we knew uh, yeah. there was fire down there because we'd been down there two days previously, um, and we knew there was nothing... Um I mean there was line but there was not, there was not black to the line. Um all pretty right. much all the way down to the desert.
1: So then uh, the soups show up um up there oh. shortcut how how'd that go?
0: The soups, you know, our soup Paul Todd and Crewbosch trainee, they packed up and headed down to scout everything and I think they walked down the original hand line down to H four And I think it was Plumas was probably with with them. And a short time later, we got the word to pack up and get hiking. You know, there was a brief interaction with Paul there at Shortcut, but I think we just kind of told him what we saw, what we thought. And then he, he packed up and went in and checked it out. And, yeah, I think it was just a short time later, within 20 minutes or so, it was, you know, two saws, the tools, and start walking. Or three saws or whatever it was. But, yeah, you know, just get them down here. And I know the Soups must have had a chat at some point and decided that we drew the, the bottom end of the slop. So we walked down the hand line as a crew. I don't know. it, It was a ways down, Dan, before we, before we started. And then, then my squad started going direct on the bottom end of the slop. Um, and that would be headed to the east, I guess. And Dan and his squad, Went from the, the hand line into the burn and just tied that off so that it would quit skunking around.
2: Yeah, That's when and, we, uh, Tom and I saw the, what looked like a log. It was pretty far down the hill burning and at some point had some helicopter drops uh, come in, but we worked on that for a while. And then at some point, uh, I walked back with a couple of folks to the trucks to get uh, all of our firing equipment, our, our quick, quick fire flares and, and all that stuff.
0: So, and that's about the only time that I know um, what the time of the day was, because that was right right at lunchtime when you did that, Dan. You had just tied your little piece off, and, and I remember we had just sat down for lunch when Dan got the call from Paul to go up and grab stubbies, some firing equipment, uh, some Copenhagen, and his cell phone,
2: <laughs> I think, was,
0: <laughs> is exactly but- what he wanted. And I, I do remember thinking like, wow, we actually got this thing tied in fairly quick. Maybe three hours, two and a half hours of work. But again, that's three crews. And then, uh, while, while Dan is hiking up and the rest of us, we were kind of, uh, we were just secure in line is what we were doing. Um, after we got a quick bite, we were just kind of improving and, and making sure that, that slop over was going to hold. Then Dan, Dan got back down and I think, tied in with the with the crew, and then was going to bring the stuff to Paul, and then he wanted you and a SAW yep. team to head down to
2: H4, right? Yeah, that's the only time I actually saw your line. I walked in there, and uh, you guys had put in a pretty good cup trench, and I dropped off the squad and ended up taking uh, the SAW team with me back down to H4. Um, that's the first time I saw the, the helicopter crew member guys that were there. Uh, there's kind of a gaggle of overhead standing on H four. Um, Jason Coyle, I think, was there, and Wilcox and Paul. And who? Uh, at some point in there, the the EMTs or paramedics. Uh, I, I either saw them walking down the line, or I saw them on H four. But I just I remember being amazed at how much crap they had.
0: Yeah, and at that but, point, that was that was the confusion when the. Day shift division coil and all of his resources came came to work or got up off the two to one and were working and that's how the EMPs, um, that's how spots got staffed. All all of that stuff was, I think, of that that confusion part of having two different divisions kind of working the same ground with different uh kind of different tasks.
2: You know, nobody's fault, I guess, that Coyle was thinking that he wanted to staff his line with the EMTs and then uh, maybe the confusion at the helibase was uh, that they wanted every helispot staffed and somehow that message didn't get relayed. But uh, yeah, it was just kind of a shock to see those guys on the side of the mountain uh, where we weren't having any flights in and out of sitting there at the Hela spot.
1: Yeah, so you guys were, at least the previous shift, you, you were assigned to the firing group which was going to be doing work in that division and that's that was Coyle's piece of dirt as the division supervisor, and Wilcox was the firing group supervisor. That was going to be bringing
0: fire through that division. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and uh, that that all got crossed when when Coyle's guys worked late that night picking up slops. Uh, so they couldn't they couldn't come on. Like I said, when Dan was headed down to H four, that's when you know Joe Julian and uh, I don't know the other soups that were you know everybody's starting to hit the line about that time. So it was starting to get super crowded, and again you're getting you're getting noon thirteen fourteen hundred time frame too to where mm-hmm. everything's starting to stack up, and all of a sudden there's a ton of people on the division
1: Dan, from your perspective that that assignment to go up and get that firing equipment did you know kind of what that was about? Was it about you know trying to get the the original mission done, which was I was assuming bringing bringing fire down the main hand line towards h four
2: Yep, for one, um, H4, if we needed to burn around it and then bringing fire to the saddle and then carrying it on down.
0: Yeah, and I do remember now when Paul got down to H4, um, Dan and I had not seen H4, I don't think. I've still never seen H4, but I remember coming over the radio that H4 was a workable safety zone. Um, Mm. but But that came out early. It was a workable... So I know that it needed some firing to even be a safety zone for us, but uh, but again, that was something that Paul felt that could be accomplished and it was a safety zone, but I do remember that coming out. Before we even headed down, that H-4 was going to be a workable safety zone for the crew.
2: I think uh, maybe that was the initial intent for me to go up and get the firing stuff was to have it there for that, but I, I do feel like the plan was also to keep carrying fire down because that's kind of what we were doing when it all went oh yeah it
0: absolutely it absolutely was too Dan because that's once uh, as soon as you headed down to H4 with your group to start cleaning that up the rest of the crew we left the swap over and headed to the main hand line and started prepping the main hand line well I just (laughs) remembered I remember prepping that hand line you know looking down that and it's a knife back ridge just looking down into that yep. steep hole and, you know, throwing rounds and such down in there. And at this point, you know, air attacks up and then also operations was up in a helicopter. So, uh, yep. Curtis was up flying around. Uh, Curtis Heaton was the ops at that point and, uh, he was up flying around and was keeping eyes on everything and him and Chris were talking and the soups. You know, I just remember the conversation coming across the radio that everything was good. There was nothing. There was no fire on our side of Nuttall Canyon. Everything was on the, uh, the west side of the canyon. And that, uh, you know, we had some time and that, uh, that, that ridge was just super scabby and that there was no way that fire would even probably make it up that ridge to us. Um, there just wasn't the fuels there. And then I think about that time, Todd notices that, that big downhill, r- uh, run across Nuttall Canyon. And uh, like I said, we're sitting there prepping, and then that's when everything started getting super expedited, Travis, when you talked about that earlier, where there's a huge rush to get the line lit from uh, Dan's check line uh, down to H-4. And the crew, the Flagstaff crew, was spread out from Dan's check line to the saddle or the knob right before um, H-4, dropping down to H-4. Um, so we're all spread out. We're prepping. We've got torches, you know, lit and st- sit, sitting in the line, ready to light as soon as Paul gives us the word. I'm not sure, Dan, what you guys are doing at this point. I would imagine you're cutting and prepping H4.
2: I believe the helicopter crew members were helping, and then Kelly and and Tom were cutting and uh, throwing brush off H4, getting ready to fire it.
0: So, yeah, so we're all uh, – the group that I'm with is all spread out. We've got the line prepped, and we're ready. And uh so we're just waiting word to light. Um I just remember Paul trying to get a hold of the other soups or the other folks on the division to find out where they're at and to let them know that we're about to start firing. At that time, then fire behavior really starts picking up. Um, we're headed down, so we're not burning now. We can't get a hold of folks, and so we need to get the entire crew down to H4. I remember looking up the hill, and everybody's got the word, so everybody's running, running down the hill, uh, down into the saddle. And then I turn around and look up the knob, and and then that at that point, that's when that 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 run comes across H4 and crosses the hand line, um, cutting the crew off from getting down to uh, H4, the soup and Dan's group. So at that point, uh, then the radio starts getting real chaotic. And uh, at that point, we decide that we're going to RTO and head back out around the slop over. Well, no, we didn't know that. We were just headed out towards the top is what we were doing. We are going to go back to the trucks. And uh, so I remember getting, getting the crew all gathered up and felt horrible for the guys that had just run down the hill to uh, head to H4. And now we're headed back up the hill. So, you know, it's up the hill, down the hill. Right? So we get everybody gathered up. Um, at that point, there's uh, quite a bit of fire behavior. You can hear Nuttall Canyon is really going off at this point. And uh, you can hear hear the fire, you know, and we're headed up this knife ridge with fire in the back, you know, right off your, your right-hand side. And uh, at some point, Todd Wood yells, drop your gear. And uh, I'm thinking, shit, we don't need to be dropping gear. Um, so I'm picking gear up. I pick up a saw and, and a domar. And then somehow I made it from the back of the line to the front of the line, and uh and uh, made it to the front. And we're headed up that line, and something—I don't know what happened—but some for some reason I just went down our hand line that we cut down around the slop over. So I took a left and headed. I just didn't want to be on that ridge, I guess. But it was just something inside me or in my gut that said get off this ridge line. So we we headed down around the slop over, and. Uh, I just remember guys were, were cutting off at that point because we had, we were kind of gapped out. So guys were cutting through the brush. So then we were able to, everybody was able to get in a nice tight line. And I remember having the conversation with Paul that, hey, that, you know, we're not making it to H4. He said, you know, at that point, that he's like, take the trail, take the trail and meet me at H4. And, uh, it's like, I don't know where the trail is, Paul. I have no clue where the trail is. And at this point, we're just going to go out the top to the trucks. And uh had that conversation with him, and he said, yeah, I just go out to the trucks. And then I remember I threw the saw on the Domar, I said, well, I'm not going to carry this saw and Delmar out to the top. So I threw that off, and then uh, we had that plan. We were headed out, and at that point, that was when um, Brian um, had, had went down. And so Todd starts calling, saying, hey, I need help. We were We were trying to get folks to head back to help, and then I guess that's when Augusta – I don't even know where Augusta was at, but – Augusta shows up and grabs Brian. We all meet there in the Aspen stand. And then I don't know, Dan, what you guys had going at that point on H4.
2: Yeah, so it's kind of funny, Brian. I was standing there when when Brian and you guys were headed down. I was standing there, the the, the little knob before you come into H4 on, uh, you know, having the guys do start working the burnout. It was uh, Kelly, and, Kelly and Tom and i never saw brian but brian swears he could see h4 he just that the, you know the kind of the flames came over the top of the knob and turned him around basically what we were doing is just what paul was telling us to do burn out uh continue to to make it a better sight. paul pretty well took charge of h4 once we had the little run come up over the knob it started getting it, it was never hot it was just unpleasant it was extremely smoky um A lot of ember wash. Uh, I don't really know exactly how long all that lasted, but uh, I do remember seeing Wilcox come in and out of H4, which I I thought was twice. He came in, and you guys were trying to get down, and then he left. And he came back again a little while later, and then he left. So he was utilizing the trail to go between you guys and us on H4. Um, And he did tell me at one point he was basically dodging spot fires Probably when the fire made its run up through the saddle, he was out there kind of dodging spot fires, trying to get back and forth. It was just frustrating to me that he could move through there twice, and uh, we were still having to sit here in this in this situation. But uh, Paul took charge of it. You know, we had uh, at least one of the EMTs, the paramedics, that was their first day or second day on the line. Um, they were extremely upset um, about the situation, obviously. Um, had no idea what to expect or, or, or what was going to happen. Probably uh, pretty nervous. The two helicopter guys at point, uh point asked me where their safety zone was, which I, I thought was uh, interesting. Um, but uh, at some point, uh, basically told everybody to get in shelters. It was really kind of, in my opinion, after, or at least from my perspective, after the worst of it, uh, we did have a firewall cross across h4 while we were standing there which it was a fire whirl and then as it got on h4 it turned into a dust devil and then went on across Um, but that was all pre pre paul telling us to get in the shelter so i don't even really remember being completely in my shelter i i remember sitting there and being able to see paul and and seeing that tom and kelly were in their shelters and at some point, I know I called you on the radio, Corey, and just to see what you guys were doing. Cause you, you basically had my whole squad, and uh, I had a Sawyer from your squad and a Sawyer from my squad. Seemed like once the once the shelter deployment happened, everything just calmed right down, and uh, it was still extremely smoky, but we all just kind of sat there for a while. Um, I, I always felt like you guys were in more danger than we were because the last I. Had the last I had seen was that country that I knew you had to walk back up through. And I knew how long it took me to walk up that hill uh, by myself with one other, you know, I took a I took a pretty strong hiker with me to go back and get Paul's stuff, and I knew that took a while, and I knew some of the folks on the crew weren't as strong hikers as we were, and I think it took me somewhere, I've got it written down somewhere, somewhere between 30 and 45 minutes to get from the saddle back up to the uh to the vehicles. So I didn't feel like you guys had enough time to do that. Um, so those were my concerns as I was sitting there. But like I said, after the deployment happened, it, it kind of all just calmed down. And I think at that point, Wilcox came back again um, from the from where you guys were at. We sat there for a while. Uh, we had a helicopter offer to lift us off H4 in their bucket, which would have been super cool if Paul was against it. So we just sat there, and then uh, we, once it all calmed down and Wilcox came back, we all just loaded up. We took a bunch of the equipment off the EMTs. They they weren't able to carry it out, and we carried that stuff out for them and tied in with you guys at, uh, at the Aspen stand.
0: Yeah, so to pick back up kind of where I left off, and I'm pretty sure what, what Brian had in 2004 was rhabdomyolysis now so that's the one that's the one part that drives me nuts in two thousand and four Rabdo didn't exist, so it was heat exhaustion as far as we knew but uh one other thing that I wanted to note that I remember as we're prepping that line and heading down to h four Jack Selvy some of the other soups and all the other personnel they were headed out of h four and uh so it just gives you that eerie feeling when folks are headed out of there and telling you you don't want to go down there and uh, your boss or your mission is to go down and burn down to H-4. It's just it's kind of surreal, like, oh, that's an interesting problem that we're against here where everybody's headed out and saying you he wouldn't want to be going down there, and here you are. That's your mission to go down there.
2: Yeah, I agree. I, I remember you telling me that, Corey. And, you know, I guess I had the perspective of we were anchored. Um, we could have gotten out. I'm pretty confident we could have at least made it to where you guys were there was no way those EMTs were getting out. Right. And I think that all was like, yep, we're here. You know, he's got uh, – got enough people to get this thing prepped and, and hold these guys in place. But, uh, yeah, we, we were anchored at that point. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's one of those disgusting. things
1: that is so contentious. It's like if you don't know the details, it's like, oh, well, the good crews just hiked to the safety zone. Like you're saying, Dan, well, so – it, does it then make sense to just go, hey, well, good luck, EMT. That's on your first ever shift of your first ever fire. You know, just hang out here on this spot. We're going to go <laughs> hike up to the truck. That doesn't seem exactly the right thing to do either.
2: No, and, and you know, when you consider what Paul was thinking, that we're anchored, but we've got this place, the whole crew was going to be in that place on H-4, pressing, burning, throwing, you know, brush off the side making that a bomb-proof uh, safety zone. So I also think Paul was thinking trail, if the crew had known where the trail was, we would have all been on H4. Well, I had never seen the trail. And it, uh, I was actually on it at times because we used it. I think part of it was our line, in fact, that uh, I had spent most of my morning on the ridge. Um, mm-hmm. And the only time I ever came around to where Corey was at, which was, I think, fairly close to the trail was when I brought the squad around there. So not knowing, not having the full perspective of of the trail. The trail wasn't really clear on the map um, because we weren't using it, and uh, it wasn't line or anything. And then the fact that we were parked at a trailhead and didn't even really cross my mind of where that went, uh, and it went right to where we were going.
0: Yeah, I... Same, same thoughts, Dan, with you is exactly the same as you cross, we crossed it back and forth, but yeah, never really put all that together. And, uh, you know, looking back on the hindsight is like, I don't even know why we, we cut line around the bottom end of that. We should have just used the trail, tied that all into H4 and, and burned it and tied it into the bottom of our slop. At least we would have had something to hold, but, um, you know, that's that hindsight, hindsight, the hindsight, but, uh, yeah, you know, thinking back on it now is why didn't we do that, but we used ridges, man. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. We had tunnel vision on that we had tunnel vision on that saddle and there was a there was a nice line. It was five feet wide. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're
1: right. It was it
0: was. But but to pick back up, you know, at the aspen stand there, um so um that's where he went down and uh that's the only reason we ended up there which you know, and that's that hindsight part which actually was probably one of the best locations to end um by whatever so however that works out Murphy's law or whatever um was a great spot for him to actually go down and then that that locked us in and uh that committed our crew and then uh that committed Augusta just they didn't want to leave us behind so so that committed uh Shinstock and all of his guys there in the Aspen stand with us so uh, I remember getting in and uh Todd and uh Mike kind of took control of the scene there, and uh we uh shed packs, we chucked fusees, we chucked sigs um we we our, uh stacked all the gear together, we pulled shelters out of the cases we didn't ever break the plastic, but we all had shelters in hand um saws were busy cutting uh Todd was busy burning with a couple of folks Shinstock had a couple of helicopters dumping water around us and uh you know the rest of the crew was kind of prepping a deployment site or digging an area down to uh to mineral soil and i just remembered or feeling that uh you know walking off that ridge or hiking up out of that ridge and that that pushing us into the aspen stand that that was a really small canyon drainage with not a lot of fuel and then uh not ever making it down to h4 and i know there was a giant piece of ground below that I was just that was my fear of that run that's going to come directly below or around H4 and come right up over the top of us that that was going to be that was going to be the hot one and uh you know not knowing and um that actually is all rock and there's no way that that would ever burn but we didn't know that in the Aspen stand or at least I didn't so I kept thinking man that that one sucked that little piece of run but the the one coming from the bottom that one's going to be that one's going to be intense, and uh, thank God it, it it never happened or never could happen. So we, we lucked out there. But uh, I do remember, you know, a couple of EMTs working from our crew. Uh, Augusta had a few of their folks working on him. I remember we were building uh, a backboard out of some Aspen poles and tarps and such because we were going to try to transport him as soon as we could. I think the the, the one take-home out of that is just try to keep folks busy, so they're not just sitting there, sitting at idle and thinking. So you know, we would get done with the mission, or they would get done with the mission, and uh, I would just come up with something else for them. You know, like oh, we'll dig it deeper, or, you know, throw more brush, or do something, and keep them tied to a mission. Yeah, and we were just kind of there prepping and, and and waiting, really, for the next uh, next pulse to come through. And then, like Dan said, I do remember. I remember Jack. Uh, the uh, plumis, he comes walking back down through the Aspen and ends, ends up down there in the Aspen stand with us. And then uh, Chris Wilcox just keeps coming in and out of the scene, like, well, where is he coming from? But I remember the sense of relief that it brought when Chris walks from H4, where we're cut off from, where we can't get to our crew, and all of a sudden Chris comes walking in. Like, huh, so it can't be that bad if Chris just comes walking in and uh kind of got the same story from him. He was dodging spot fires, and it was fairly hot to where it wasn't worth bringing everybody down to H4, and that he thought that the Aspen stand was just as good of a place as as H4, if not better. And uh that's kind of where it ended. We just hung out there, and uh, it was probably an hour or so of fire activity and thick, thick smoke um, before we were able to to reunite as a crew. And that was uh that involved Paul, Dan and the guys all H four hiking up and meeting us in the Aspen Stand. Um the big push was to get the uh the EMTs and their gear up to Brian so that they could start IVs and actually get the medical folks working on him. So as soon as that trail was passable, um those guys hiked up and then we were able to get some true medical professionals working on Brian at that point. And at that point, that's yeah, that's when I remember seeing Dan in his burned-up helmet, carrying all the medical stuff, walking, <laughs> walking up to the crew, and uh, you know, just that sense of relief that all the guys are back together and we're gonna hike out of here and and uh, you know, have another shift after this.
1: What does it mean to you guys today? How is it that you frame this in your mind, and what are, what are the things other people could learn
0: from your experience?
2: Honestly, for me. What was so frustrating at the time was that you couldn't question anything, and we're not there anymore. You can question, and in fact, we we encourage it. At least the crews that I've been around and that I you know have worked with in the last I don't know six or seven years, you are allowed to say, "Man, I, that doesn't look right to me," or you know, "Here's something that you know, why are we taking this risk?" Um, so I think. We have moved past those days of just blind following without, uh, you know, without question. Not that that's exactly what we were doing that day, but uh, one of the other issues is the escape route, not clear, not clear that there are actually two ways to get there. Um, You know, those are the kind of things that I don't ever let slip through the cracks. Um, If I see a better way to get somewhere, definitely, um, you know, make that known and flag it and make sure it's covered well. I got
1: you. So, like, when Paul was saying, hey, there's a workable safety zone down here, then that would be a cue to, like, go figure out, okay, if that's the case, what's the best way to get there and just kind of have that picture in your mind.
2: Right. Do a little scouting, and get some distances. But in that time, you know, we – The suit told you what was what, and you did it. Um, If the suit told you there was a safety zone, there was a safety zone somewhere, and, and you could get to it. Um, it wasn't always uh, as open as it is now. I think my understanding is now is that those things. It's more open. There's more open communication. Uh, there's more task purpose in state in the briefing, not just in state.
0: One of the big points is is uh, so going from you know having a safety zone to being in uh, in the Aspen stand or or on H4. It uh, it happens so quick. So where it's, it's just, uh, to put that in that perspective of, um, you know, you never think you're going to end up there and it's as simple as one of your more fit guys going down with a rhabdo and all of a sudden your, your primary, you know, our primary was cut off so we'd result back to the secondary and then secondary gets cut off with the medical emergency and it, it, it happens that quick. So when folks talk about having, you know, one and two and three and four escape routes, um that's great but it it still is just one little thing away from it all changing and you know i i spent i guess i did 15 years on cruise and that's the only time that that i didn't make it to a safety zone or escape route that i was cut off but um you know out of all the hundred times that i did it was just one one sprained ankle or one wrong turn or you know, just really keep that in, in mind that it, it happens that quick and you, you can't plan and account for everything that you're gonna come across, so you, you just do what you gotta do, but uh man it happens quick. Uh,
2: to tag on to what you said there too, Corey, and when uh Yacht Now happened and we talked after that, uh Corey said something to me that I've carried on and it's people get killed when fire outperforms our expectations. Um and we gotta find a way to bring the reality and our expectations you know, closer together. And these days, with with the fire behavior that we're seeing, I think fire is going to continually outperform our expectations.
1: And I, I like to talk about the difference between um, forecasts and predictions, because what we get is a forecast, right? It's like, well, there's a percent right. chance, whatever. Cause that's all we're really capable of doing is a forecast. But when you go out there to put a tool in the dirt, you have to make a prediction. You know, you have to say, well, I think it's going to do this, or I think it's going to move this fast, and I think we can move this fast, and you, know, you have to make a prediction. You have to decide, are you are you going to do it, or you, are you not? Um, and the only way to decide that is based on if what you think that fire is going to do or not do. You know, when our predictions are wrong, they're usually good stories. Um,
0: and every so often, it's a freaking bad story. Yeah, and I think that's the difference with Nuttall is it was all there. We just luck had it that we had those breaks of rock bands below us and such to where that fuel wasn't all there. You know, we just didn't have, you know, the perfect alignment and that's where you have those. That's when there's the bad stories. Wow. There you have it folks. Uh, wisdom, knowledge, Use it. That's the whole point here, right? Um, Take the lessons from Dan and Corey.
3: Put them to use on your next fire, your next shift. Maybe that's uh, that's where you're headed right now. Think about what you just heard and talk about it
0: with the folks that wear the same t-shirt as you. Better yet, talk about it with some folks that wear a different t-shirt than you and uh yeah apply these lessons you've caught the ball you just need to run with it now don't forget to go to wildfirelessons.net get to a bunch of good stuff from there and uh i'm gonna leave the last word to dan he's got some some wisdom here for us what do you say dan
2: a little bit more information and then a little bit better communication and we would have uh maybe been in a different situation there and I think that all just rhymed.
3: Hey, that music makes me want to go surfing.
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast.